Welcome to the podcast for the Northwest Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Atlanta. Our minister is the Reverend Terry Davis, and each week we'll record audio of the sermon and reflections from members of the congregation from the pulpit at our home in the woods. Thank you for joining us. You can visit us in person at 1025 Mount Vernon Highway Northwest in Sandy Springs or on the web at nwuuc.org. January 10th, 2016. Today's sermon is In Need of Grace by the Reverend Terry Davis. This past Tuesday and the first time since the holidays, I re-entered my office here at Northwest and my first order of business on Tuesday was to undecorate the place. I put away all the Christmas cards I received and I removed the now slightly wilting red poinsettia from my desk which was given to me by a kind Northwest member and I took down my Charlie Brown Christmas tree with its solitary pine branch and its single red ornament. I really have a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. (laughs) And in true Charlie Brown fashion, I accidentally busted the ornament as (laughs) as I was disassembling the tree. And lastly, I went to a bulletin board which hangs next to my office door and I took down what was now last year's monthly calendar. That wall calendar, which hung quietly in our dim-lit hall there outside my office, was sent to me from the Church of the Larger Fellowship, of which I am a member. Yes, I am a member of another congregation. (laughs) How many of you know about the Church of the Larger Fellowship? Okay, some, not very many. For those of you that don't know about it, it's the Unitarian Universalist Congregation without walls. The Church of the Larger Fellowship doesn't have a sanctuary, it doesn't have a parking lot, it doesn't have a choir, and it doesn't serve coffee and Danish during Sunday fellowship. That's because the Church of the Larger Fellowship exists solely on the internet. Its senior minister, the Reverend Meg Riley, who's based in Boston, serves over 3,500 men, women, and children who are all members and who live all over the world, which makes the Church of the Larger Fellowship the largest congregation in our movement. The Church of the Larger Fellowship has video worship services at 8 o'clock on Sunday evenings and at 2 o'clock on Monday afternoons with real-time interaction. So you could come here and then you could go to the Church of the Larger Fellowship if you wanted to do that. They have music, they have an offering, they publish a monthly newsletter for their members, but perhaps even more impressive than that, the Church of the Larger Fellowship has several vibrant ministries beyond its virtual walls. It has an online Latino ministry, it has a family ministry, It has a ministry to military personnel and their families. 
and the Church of the Larger Fellowship has an active prison ministry. And that's because nearly 700 members of the Church of the Larger Fellowship are in prison. Most of these prisoners discovered Unitarian Universalism behind bars. They now receive mailings of the congregation's monthly newsletter and of the UU World, which is our denomination's monthly magazine. The prisoners and the members of the Church of the Larger Fellowship, they participate in church classes by mail, and they receive letters from pen pals. Now, I've written to prisoners through the Church of the Larger Fellowship's letter writing program, and I think some of you here have done the same. Well, the calendar that I took down from my bulletin board this past week, it featured every month a letter from one of those prisoners. That was the graphic that went along with the dates. And thumbing through it this week, I came across a reflection from a prisoner named John that made me pause. And I'd like to share it with you. John wrote, This aspect of my spiritual enlightenment has come with curious sniffs, wet-nosed nudges, and a few loving licks. You see, I encourage skunks to come to my window, and I have a selfish reason for doing so. They feed me spiritually. Therefore, it's the least I can do to feed them physically. When one of their sleek black faces appears in my window, my heart fills with love. And I simultaneously know that it is this feeling that I'm supposed to have for all beings, including humans, all the time. If my black and white friend thinks I have done well in realizing this need, then he graciously allows me to pat his head before wandering off to preach elsewhere. Well, I shared this reflection at our weekly Wednesday staff meeting, and honestly, I've been thinking about it ever since. I've been picturing in my mind the interaction with the wild skunk that John described. I've imagined that John's prison is likely in a rural place, as many are, and I've thought about him saving bits of food from his breakfast or his lunch so that he can feed it to the skunks that now come by for regular handouts. I've imagined John shoving his hand through a narrow window in his cell. Perhaps his cell is below ground in an older prison, which is why the skunks can wander right up to him. And I've imagined the tender way that John touches their soft fur of these usually feared little animals, and how by doing so, his soul is touched in ways that we might never have fully known if he hadn't written that letter, and if the Church of the Larger Fellowship hadn't printed it on a page of its 2015 calendar. What I can't imagine, of course, is why John is incarcerated. What crime did he commit? How much time has he served? How much of his sentence is left to go? 
Whatever John did to land him in prison, his reflection reveals that he's someone who is capable of compassion and someone who seems to be capable of change. And perhaps someone like John is in need of grace. Grace is one of those words that I hear used frequently in my daily life. When I use it, I generally think of it as a plea to the powers that be to cut me a little slack, to throw me a bone, to loosen up a bit, or to act with generosity. In other words, when I ask for grace, I'm asking for a favor, as Elizabeth suggested in today's story wisdom. Give me a little grace here, I've often pled to the traffic gods. As I'm slowly inching my car forward on I-85 during rush hour and running late for an appointment, I know that I should have allowed probably twice the time I did for my journey. Nevertheless, I'm hoping that something amazing or unexpected happens, like the bumper-to-bumper cars might magically start moving, or perhaps the person I'm scheduled to meet might possibly be running late too. And when I have received grace from the traffic gods, I usually have a feeling of gratitude as well as the sense that I probably didn't deserve the cosmic gift. In the Christian tradition, which is where I first encountered the word grace, grace is understood as the free and unmerited favor of God, which God manifests by forgiving sins and bestowing blessings. The idea is that no one deserves God's forgiveness and God's blessings, but we get them anyway because God loves us. Grace says that God knows we mess up, and sometimes we mess up in very tragic ways, and yet God doesn't feel a need to punish us eternally. This theology of unconditional love and forgiveness was, in fact, the central belief of the Christian universalists, the ancestors of our Unitarian Universalist faith. In our reading this morning, attorney Brian Stevenson suggests that we all need some measure of unmerited grace. In his work representing death row inmates, Stevenson says that his close proximity to these prisoners and their humanness is what convinced him that all of us need an occasional big favor from the powers that be. All of us need grace from time to time, he says, because all of us mess up. And whether we like to think so or not, all of us are responsible when we ignore and allow the mistreatment of others. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done, Stevenson writes. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. In my message to you this morning, I would like to suggest that retribution can only go so far. Whatever John did 
whatever these prisoners that Brian Stevenson represents have done, I believe that their actions still do not make them unworthy of acts of compassion. As much as we may abhor the crime that a person committed, I believe we divorce ourselves from our humanity when we abhor the person in equal measure. Said another way, an absence of compassion can turn us into the inhuman monsters we think we're locking up for life or sentencing to death. Somewhere in our process of justice, somewhere in our journey towards healing and wholeness, there needs to be room for kindness, for forgiveness, and for hope. Without these, our prayers and our journey towards transformation are dead on arrival. We will never move closer to our vision of the beloved community if we can't find a way to include everyone in the word beloved. Now, some of you may be thinking, easier said than done, or our minister is naive. And perhaps you're right about both. Perhaps it is incredibly naive and even irresponsible of me to say that justice without compassion isn't justice at all, especially when we think of some of the horrible acts of violence committed against innocent men, women, and children. What about their pain and the suffering of their families and friends? How is justice served when sentences are lightened, when prison conditions are improved, or when the death penalty is eliminated? One of the major points Brian Stevenson makes in his book is that our justice and penal system is riddled with terrible mistakes and appalling indifference. He argues that race and power still conspire to make it easy to condemn a black man to death, and that race and poverty still make it difficult for him to win justice. Stevenson tells a grim tale about the criminal justice system in Alabama and our nation. He writes, when I first went to death row in December 1983, America was in the early stages of a radical transformation that would turn us into an unprecedentedly harsh and punitive nation and result in mass imprisonment that has no historical parallel. Today, we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. The prison population has increased from 300,000 people in the early 1970s to 2.3 million people today. One in every 15 people born in the United States in 2001 is expected to go to jail or to prison. One in every three black male babies in this century is expected to be incarcerated. Stevenson continues, we have shot hanged, gassed, electrocuted, and lethally injected hundreds of people to carry out legally sanctioned executions. Thousands more <coughs> await their execution on death row. Some states have no minimum age for prosecuting children as adults. We've sent a quarter million <coughs> kids to adult jails and prisons to serve long prison terms 
some under the age of 12. For years, we've been the only country in the world that condemns children to life imprisonment without parole. Nearly 3,000 juveniles have been sentenced to die in prison. These are Stevenson's words. He tells stories about the treatment of death row inmates with details that made me sick. He describes botched and barbaric electrocutions, including one where 1,900 volts of electricity were administered three times over a 14-minute period to his death row client, smoldering the man's flesh and clothing until he was finally declared dead. Another death row client of Stevenson's was electrocuted despite the fact that the man had intellectual disabilities. His life sentence, which had been handed down by a jury, was overturned by the judge and changed to a death sentence instead. They can do that in Alabama. Stevenson also describes the conditions in which condemned prisoners on Alabama's death row live. They live in concrete, windowless cells that measure five by eight feet with a metal door, a commode, and a steel bunk. The sweltering August heat in Alabama means that the temperature in those cells, which aren't air conditioned, often reaches over 100 degrees for days and sometimes weeks at a time. Anne Stevenson writes of the inhumane way children are treated by the justice and penal system. He tells the story of a 13-year-old boy sentenced to solitary confinement in a maximum security adult prison. That boy lived for 18 years in a cell the size of a walk-in closet, and he was allowed only three showers a week and 45 minutes a day outside the cell for exercise in a small cage, 13 years old. Another boy, age 14, was sent to a county jail for adults where he was repeatedly raped and sexually abused by other prisoners until Stevenson intervened and had the child moved to a nearby juvenile facility. In story after story after story, Brian Stevenson encounters brokenness in the criminal justice system, including acts of corruption, carelessness, apathy, and extremely harsh sentences. It's this brokenness that serves as the backdrop for his moving accounts of the condemned persons that he feels compelled to help. Over the next few months, we're going to be delving deeper into Stevenson's stories as we explore his book, Just Mercy, during our second Sunday sermon series. And if you haven't read the book yet or don't have a copy, we can, you can get it from us at the Bellwether Bookstore. And following these sermons on the second Sunday of the month, we're going to engage in conversations, including what we as a congregation might be able to do to help. As Stevenson reminds us, people can be tragically imperfect, and the criminal system can also be tragically unjust. Those who are sentenced to death row are not monsters. They're mirrors. They're mirrors for us. They hold up for us the pain and the failings of our humanity. Whatever their crimes, if we get close enough, we'll find that these inmates are still worthy of some measure of compassion. They, 
like John, like all of us, are in need of grace. We're all in this together. Let's travel down this path and let's see where it may lead us. Blessed be.